You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. John 1, 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they asked him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we were left in darkness. We did not know you, but we've had grace to hear the testimony and witness of Christ, and we believe. And as those who are your children, we cry out to you in the name of Jesus, knowing that you have baptized us in the Spirit, but pleading afresh, send your Spirit. In the name of Christ, send Him now to strengthen our faith, to increase our faith. And send Him now to save souls, to open eyes, to grant knowledge, to give faith, as Christ has witnessed to this morning. In the name of Christ we ask this, Amen. As John the Evangelist the author of this gospel, transitioned us from the 
word eternal, verses 1 through 5, to the word incarnate, verses 6 through 18, by means of a man named John, so too, now, as we're reading along, Verses 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John serves as this figure that introduces Christ historically. And in this gospel, virtually all the gospels, John serves to introduce us to Christ. John is still bearing witness to the light, and his witness is easily imitable. You can imitate John. It's so simple. What John does here, all of you can do it. Every saint can do what John is doing here. His witness basically consists of two parts, conveniently divided up for you into two days. You see that in verse 29, the next day. So first day, 19 through 28, next day, 29 through 34. Two parts, two days. First day, John's witness is largely negative. As he bears witness to this official delegation, and he tells them, I am not. Day two, John's witness is largely positive. As he's speaking to what you, I sense, is the regular crowds that would gather about him. And he testifies to them, he is. That's John's witness. That's it. I am not, he is. And my prayer for you, for me, for us this morning is just as simple. That we would both hear this testimony and Say this testimony. So day one, John's negative witness. Why might it be so that his witness on this first day was largely negative? We have John giving his testimony, that is his witness. It's the same word that you had in verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And this is the witness of John. You can miss that a bit in the English. Same word in the original language. This is the witness of John. Why is his witness, though, largely negative on this first day? Well, it's not just, this is the witness of John. This is the witness of John when the Jews sent this official delegation consisting of priests and Levites. Who are these Jews? These are not democratically elected diplomats representing the whole nation to answer the question of John. The Jews as a people were going out to get that answer themselves. Note that they are from Jerusalem. That's telling. They are Levites. They are priests. I think it nearly beyond question that this is a group sent by the Sanhedrin, the highest official court of the, of, of the Jews. 
made up largely of the priestly aristocracy who would have been predominantly Sadducees by conviction. There would have been a smattering of Pharisees as well. By tribe, many of these, both of them would have been Levites. Among the Pharisees, other tribes would have been uh, as prominent as well. They could have been by trade priests. Some of them were, some of them scribes, other professions. But they are the high authorities, and for these high authorities, John has short answers. When he does speak at length, you notice there's a bit of rebuke. If, if you can't read it in the words, you, you just sense it in his tone. And their questions are essentially two. Who are you and why are you doing this? Baptizing. Who are you and why are you doing this? What they're really saying is, we don't recognize you. You don't have our stamp of approval. So you got to be someone special one of these categories, own up to that anyway, then we'll see if that's really the case, and you still get our stamp of approval, or you're just some rebel, which is likely the conclusion we'd come to either way. Who do you think you are? This is an authority probe by the authorities because there's someone who has not got their stamp of approval. This is essentially the same question that they put to Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus answers by putting before them the matter of John, which they don't want to answer. Matthew 21, 24 through 27. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In the same way here, John is answering their questions in such a way, though, that I think it's clear, he's showing that their authority is empty while demonstrating his own. Who are you? John first answers, I am not the Christ. John opens by answering the main question that would have been on their minds. He's not the Christ. Now, why might that have been their suspicion? Never mind that this would have been the deep and profound longing of every Jew, especially in that political climate. This is their chief longing and desire. Never mind that. This is the man who a keynote of his message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he tells them, I am not the Christ. The Christ, the Christos, the christened one. The anointed one. Or, instead of the Greek Christ, he is the Hebrew, same idea, he's the Hebrew Messiah. He is the Messiah. There were three offices that were anointed with oil. 
Symbolic of the Spirit's empowering them for that ministry. Prophet, priest, and king. But whenever the Jews thought of the Christ, it was predominantly the king. The son of David that they had in view. Isaiah spoke of him saying, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's uh, grandfather. There sh- excuse me, his father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. But I take this really to be the negative reason for the negative answer. They ask, who are you? John says, I am not the Christ, to bring about the same line of thinking that you see in verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Why does he say, I'm not the Christ? Because positively, that's what John was about, not himself. But Christ, that's his purpose. John is not the light, Jesus is the light. John is not the Christ, Jesus is the Christ. John's answers are short because they're asking John about John when John's purpose is to tell others about Christ. No saints, that we would learn this same lesson. Not the lesson of holy rudeness. That's one you can learn from John right here. It's one to learn from John. There's a time for it. But more foundationally, and more often, you will need this lesson. And this carries across the board. To be short on self and long on Jesus. We love the question, don't we? Who are you? Let me tell you about me. No. Reply should be, I am not. He is. Second, at their inquiry, John tells them, he's not Elijah, verse 21. But isn't he? John says he's not Elijah. It seems the evidence weighs against him. The Old Testament closes, as we have it arranged, with this prophecy from Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Remember the disciples, after the transfiguration, they've seen Jesus in glory with Elijah and Moses at his side. And they ask, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus tells them, Elijah does come first. He will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. 
They didn't recognize John. That's exactly what's happening right here. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, Matthew 11, 11 through 12. And the narrator then adds, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. If that's not clear enough, Matthew 14, Jesus says of John, he is the Elijah who was to come. So how do we rectify this? I think there are two possibilities. There are probably others. I think there are two main possibilities here. More likely in my mind is that they ask this question the same way you might be asked the question, are you a Calvinist? You might start answering, you wait a second, see it on their faces as you even start to say yes. What do you mean by Calvinist? Except in this instance, John knows what they mean by Elijah. And what they mean by Elijah is not what the Scriptures meant by Elijah. Whenever they said Elijah, they may have really meant Are you Elijah? Taken up in a whirlwind? It's going to come back in the same way. He's just going to come back. And that this is a possibility, well, first of all, why would they think that? He is dressed in camel's hair, wearing a belt of leather. Go to 1 Kings 1.8. This man of God said this to me. What was he dressed like? He was wearing hair, a garment of hair, a leather belt. That was Elijah, the king replies. That's what... John was wearing, he looked like Elijah. He had the garb of that prophet of old. And that the Jews could have thought in this manner, that he's actually Elijah, well, recall this. Jesus asked the disciples, Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? You remember the answers that are floating about that they pitch? Some say John the Baptist. They think you're the guy that was beheaded. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Who am I? Who the crowd say I am? They're saying you're one of the dead prophets. But as Gabriel made plain to Zechariah, John is sent before the Lord, Luke 1.17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the same way that Elisha asked for a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah, now John comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. The second option is, in my mind, John didn't know. He didn't know he was that Elijah. Because what John was majoring on, he knew he was a voice crying out in the wilderness. He knew that much. But John wasn't that concerned about who he was. He knew who Jesus was, and he knew who he was in respect to Jesus. But knowing that he is that Elijah doesn't really need, isn't necessary knowledge to fill in the gaps necessary for him to do what he's meant to do. So perhaps he just did not know that he was that Elijah. Jesus knew more about John than John knew about John, and that's true irrespective of how we understand what's being said here. Third, John tells them he is not the prophet, verse 21. Who is the prophet? Are you the prophet? This is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. 
It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear the voice of Yahweh my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whosoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, Yahweh goes on to tell Moses about some tests for prophets, whether or not they're true prophets. So what Yahweh is saying here has a broad application concerning every prophet, but there's a more narrow concern. A prophet like Moses. All the prophets were tested in relation to Moses. How do you know whether or not they're true? By what Moses said. By the test he laid down. Are they like him? And yet there's someone that's so like him that it's like him whenever he stood between them and the people on Sinai and the covenants being made. This is a promise of a mediatorial prophet. A prophet through whom a new covenant is coming about. A prophet unlike the others by which all others are judged. Deuteronomy closes telling us, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses is promising a prophet like him. Then you read, there's not been another one like him who knew Yahweh face to face and all the signs and wonders that he did. The Jews evidently didn't expect necessarily for the Christ to be the same person as the prophet. For the anointed king to be the same person as the anointed prophet. But the early church did as she ascribes these verses in, Acts, in Deuteronomy 18 to her Lord in Acts 3, 22 through 23. John is not the prophet. Jesus is the prophet. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Jesus not only speaks to the Father face to face. In His face, in Him, you see the Father. Whenever, and you see God the Son incarnate with the face of Jesus Christ, man spoke to the face of God. John is not the prophet, Jesus is the prophet. And now, with their having grown seemingly as exasperated by John's answers as he likely was by their questions, they say, Well, who then? Who do you say you are? John answers that he is a voice. John is a voice, a voice. Jesus is the Word. 
John is just a voice bearing witness to the word, take on flesh. John says that he's the one Isaiah spoke of, and the fuller context of Isaiah 40 is illuminating. Isaiah 41 through 11, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places as a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God, Yahweh, comes with His might. His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. And He will recompense His, His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now this prophecy looked forward to the return of the exiles in Babylon through that desert wasteland that lies between Babylon and Jerusalem. And Yahweh is leading them as a triumphant king, bringing them back. And there are these heralds going before Him, prepare the way. But now, instead of a voice crying out, make way through the wilderness, it's a voice crying out in the wilderness, make way. But the idea is that the king has come to lead a second exodus, a return to the promised land. The implications of John's answer seem to escape this delegation. Now the Pharisees, previously unidentified, I think that's the best sense that can be made whenever we read verse 25. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. It could be the idea of now the ones who were the Pharisees among these that had been sent. The problem is, I think this delegation represents the Sanhedrin, which is largely controlled by the priestly Sadducee aristocracy because there are priests and Levites. They would have been the more liberal contingency. Now the conservatives that are part of the delegation speak up, the ones sent from the Pharisees ask, well, why then? Why are you doing this? We didn't send you. You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. So who do you think you are? On what grounds are you doing this? John's already answered that question. I'm a voice preparing the way. But he answers again in a way that 
puts the same pressure on them. I am, uh, he's answered, I am the voice. Then he answers, I baptize with water, verse 26. But among you stands one you do not know. I'm just baptizing with water. And who I am is determined in reference to one so far above me. I'm baptizing with water. What's that about? Mark tells us that he was baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was calling for this repentance with this kind of language, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm baptized. Do you see the correlation now? I'm baptizing with water and there's one great among you and you do not know him. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make way for the Lord. This one is so great that John says, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoe. You have to picture the ancient world. You know the story of the washing of the feet. The occurrences of that as it happens in different contexts in the gospel. And while disciples would have performed many tasks for their masters, that was one reckoned below a disciple. It's not something a disciple would do. That was a task for the slave. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to have the lowest position of relationship to this one who is in your midst. And you, you don't even know him. By their repeatedly asking John who John is, it's clear that they don't have a clue who John is. John's answers are short because they're asking John about John when John's purpose is to proclaim Christ. John is telling them, if you're asking who I am, you're missing the point of who I am. I am not. He is. I am a lamp. Jesus will say that about me. I won't. I am a lamp. He is the light. I am a voice. He is the word. They're not recognizing who John is. Remember, Jesus says, Elijah does come first, and they didn't recognize him. They're not recognizing who John is is a symptom of their not recognizing who Jesus is. Because they don't know the king, they do not recognize his herald sent before him. Saints, there's a way of you knowing your Bible and not knowing your Bible. There's a way of you knowing your Bible characters and you're not knowing them at all. There's a way of you knowing John the Baptist, knowing John the Apostle, and not knowing anything of who they are. If you're obsessed with them, you've missed the point. Likewise, in a lesser manner, there's a way of you knowing John MacArthur, John Piper, John Murray, John Gill, John Newton, John Owen, John Bunyan, 
and not knowing them at all. They are all of them, every one of them, knots. Jesus is. And the reason they're great knots, instead of just naughty knots, the reason they're great knots is because they say, I am not. And if you're obsessed about them, you've missed the point of everything about them that is great and good. I am not. He is. May we all be such knots. I am not. He is. If you really know who any of the biblical characters are that are worth any imitation at all, if you know anything of who a true gospel minister is that's worth any imitation at all, if you know anything of saints who are worthy of imitation, if you know anything of them, you don't ask, who are you? You ask, not like this Jewish delegation, you ask like those Greeks that came to Philip this question. Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. Show us Jesus. Who is Jesus? Let's turn to Paul, John's positive witness, verses 29 through 34. The next day, get the impression John is speaking to the regular crowds now. The next day, he's doing his regular ministry and he sees Jesus. Saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John saw and he called for others to look. That's evangelism. See Jesus and say Jesus. Look at him and call for others to look at what you're, to behold, see what I'm seeing. If you see Jesus, you will call for others to look, see and say. And if your saying has grown stale, then your seeing has grown dim. See yourself into saying, God, do it now. Loosen our tongues with fresh sight. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the first thing John testifies of. Many will speculate, what exactly does he mean by the Lamb of God? Is this a reference to the Passover Lamb? This is a reference to the lamb that was offered up as a daily sacrifice, Exodus 29. This is a reference to the guilt offering, which could be a lamb. This is a reference to that lamb that Abraham told his son Isaac, God will provide for himself a lamb. Is it a reference to... The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who we read is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And of course the answer is yes. All of these. All of them come together. If you try to make the correlation just one of them, you'll, you'll strain. Well, it's this, but except for... No, it's all of them. Come together, come in fullness in Christ. And he takes away not only the sin of the Jews, he takes away the sin of the Gentiles, of the whole world. 
Lamb of God, when we behold Thee, lowly in the manger laid, wandering as a homeless stranger in the world Thy hands had made, when we see Thee in the garden, in Thine agony of blood, at Thy grace we are confounded, holy, spotless Lamb of God. When we see Thee as the victim, bound for us upon the tree, for our guilt and folly stricken, all our judgment borne by Thee, Lord, we own with hearts adoring, Thou hast loved us unto blood. Glory, glory everlasting be to Thee, Thou Lamb of God. John next testifies that this Lamb of God who is after Him is before Him and thus ranks above Him. Verse 30. This is He of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. And this takes you back not only to John's confession in verse 15 where he said this, This takes you back all the way to the beginning of this prologue. In the beginning, the Word was. He was before me as man. Jesus came after John. John was born first. And John's ministry came first. But as God, Jesus was before John. In the beginning, the Word was. And as the God-man then, Jesus ranks above John. Before all. The Lamb who would go down to the depths for our sins descended from heavenly heights. He who ranks above us all descended below us all to raise us up to the heavenlies. What a marvel that He who was before would come after that he who was above, worthy of all glory, would stoop to bear judgment for we who are worthy of all hell. Next, John testifies. Jesus is not only the Christ, he is the christener. He's not only the anointed, he's the anointer. Verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. He's the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. The Spirit descended, and it remained on Him. Unlike Saul, this was a permanent resting of the Spirit upon Him. as God's prophet, priest, and king. And unlike every prophet, priest, and king of old, Jesus has the Spirit in full. In full and permanently. It's Isaiah who, more than anyone else in the Old Testament, unpacks what it means for Christ to be the Messiah, the Anointed One. You already saw this in Isaiah 11. Listen to Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. You hear, in, my, in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. Do you hear the baptism of Christ there? Behold my son, with whom I'm well pleased. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In what might have been the shortest sermon ever preached, might have been, Jesus might have expounded further, but in what might have been the shortest sermon ever preached, Jesus takes up Isaiah 63, 1-3 as his text. The Spirit of Yahweh, of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This is the fuller context. Jesus stopped, didn't deal with the judgment aspect. The day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint, of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. And then, after reading Isaiah 63, Luke tells us, and he does this in his hometown, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath, and after he does this, Luke says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This would be the official posture for teaching. He sat down, and all and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said what no other preacher can say. The point of this text is me. And Jesus said what every other preacher should say. The point of this text is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh's anointed. His king to deliver God's people. His prophet to declare God to his people. His priest to draw God's people near to their God. But not only is he the anointed, he's the anointer, verse 33. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus not only receives the Spirit, he gives the Spirit. He sends the Spirit. In the Nicene Creed, we confess, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. We share that creed with all Christendom. But the Eastern Church, use that word loosely, has one less word in their version of that creed. It's translated for you three words, and the Son. They don't have that word that comes to you as and the Son. They only will allow the Spirit proceeding from the Father. This is, if not the straw that broke the camel's back, it had occurred earlier. But this, was, this was the thing that uh, some bitterness had long pent up and then one thing after another. This was one of the weightiest straws on the camel's back. It led to the schism between East and West in the 11th century, the two parting. 
and theologians in supporting, arguing for, and the Son, it should be there, have appealed to passages like John 15, 26. But when the, whole, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Son sends the Spirit that proceeds from the Father. If you back up earlier, John 14, it talks a lot about the Father sending the Spirit. So who sends the Spirit? The Father and the Son. And there is a correlation between the Spirit's temporally being sent and His eternal proceeding from the Father. There's a correlation. And so the argument, the theological argument is, as the Spirit proceeds, excuse me, as the, as, as the Spirit temporally is sent by the Son and the Father, He eternally has proceeded from the Father and the Son. The point of that little excursion is that you see Jesus as the sender of the Spirit. Realize the significance of what John is saying here. Who could baptize another person by, with, in the Spirit? Who could baptize a person with God other than God? Can you wield God? Can you puddle Him up? Can you take a soul and dunk Him into God? Only God could do such a thing. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. But for the Lamb of God to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, He would need to be baptized in judgment. For the priest, the priest, the anointed priest would have to be slain for the anointed king to send the Spirit. So you can naturally see why we go then from this Baptizing with the Holy Spirit to John's next and final word of witness here. Verse 34. This one on whom he saw the Spirit descend and remain. This one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. This recalls that foundational prologue that we see in 1 through 18 where we're told that the Man, Jesus Christ, is the Word, the eternal Word incarnate. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Puritan John Boys wrote, In creation the Lord made man like Himself, but in the redemption He made Himself like man. This, John says, this one... Who is, whom I'm calling you to look at and behold. This one who is the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. This one whom I saw the Spirit descend on and remain. This one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This one who, though He comes after me, is before me and thus above me. This, this is the Son of God. Let's return to that question that was posed by John by the Pharisees. 
Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You see how John has answered this question more clearly with the crowds. John was baptizing, yes, to prepare a way. And preparing a way meant preaching repentance. Mark 1.4, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But... That baptism was also the means by which John would be able to identify the Messiah and thus reveal him to Israel. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father testified, Son of God, with the descent of his spirit. The synoptics add, he proclaimed, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now some puzzle themselves over John's not knowing here. What does he mean he didn't know him? They're cousins. One is, don't anachronistically read back your little family reunions and get-togethers back into the ancient world. They didn't live in the same area Further, I think Luke 180 suggests that they very likely could have never have met. And the child grew, became, this is John. The child grew and became strong in spirit. Elsewhere it talks about the spirit being upon him from his conception. Grew strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness. We went from his childhood to in the wilderness with a comma. Until the day of his public appearance to Israel, I think John, at a really young age, went into the wilderness. What was he doing there? He was hearing from God about how the Messiah was to be known. Instead of puzzling over John's not knowing, notice what the author is doing. John didn't know. The Pharisees, the Levites, the priests, didn't know. But John had received a word whereby the one who was take away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, he received a word whereby he was to know him. The Jews had received a word whereby they would know John and Christ and what they were about. You have one who believes the Word of God and you have others who do not. He was in the world and the world was made through Him yet the world did not know Him. But He came, he came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him who believed in His name He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Dear souls, you have Christ testified of before you today, witnessed to before you today. You have the Scripture's witness of Christ, and thus you have the Father's witness of Jesus. You have the Spirit's witness of Jesus. You have... John, the Apostle's 
witness of Jesus. You have John the Baptist, witness of Jesus. You have it all before you right now. And all these testimonies serve one purpose. It's the purpose that John was sent for that's made clear in verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. As John closes his letter with his purpose statement in John 20, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. You have this witness put before you that you might believe. Look and live. Behold, believe. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one that though He came after, He was before, and thus He's above all. He is the Christ and the Christener. He's the Anointed One and the Anointer. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. Look and live. Sinner, hear this testimony and believe. Saints, believing it, tell it. I'm afraid that our biggest problem is not a lack of knowledge to tell people He is. You see how simple it is here. Could we better say who Jesus is? Every one of us could. Could we grow in our knowledge and be better able to evangelize and answer questions? Yes. Don't need any of that to really do this. Could do it better, but you don't need it to do it. Our biggest problem is not a lack of knowledge to tell people He is. Our biggest problem is a lack of humility to tell them we're not. It's not that we think we're Christ. We want to answer, oh, I am the Christ. We just want to tell them, I'm God. I'm a big deal. I'm something. I want others to think I'm something. It's pride. And if we tell them we're not, then we're set up to tell them Jesus is. And we're afraid the blow that that would deal to us. But if you are convicted and seeing Jesus, you want to say Jesus now. Take comfort, dear heart. You don't have to know a whole lot to testify of Christ. You have these simple things laid before you. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one that though He came after, He was before, and thus He's above all things. He is the Christ and the Christener. He is the Son of God. That's it. You don't have to know a great something to testify of Christ. You just need to realize, I'm not a great something. He is. I am not. He is.
hear this testimony. Say this testimony. Let's pray. Holy Father, in the name of your perfect Son, the Lamb of God, we plead you would send your Holy Spirit upon your people to empower us, having heard to tell. And that telling your Spirit would move. The Spirit would blow. And that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they would have life in His name. May it be so, Father. Have mercy on us for all the time it has not been in all of our pride, but in happy humility. May we bow now, eager, To shout, as John has modeled before us, I am not, He is. In the name of Him who is everything, who is our all, who is our righteousness, we plead this. For His name, we plead this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.